Lord, as we come to this text, we realize that we feed our souls. We realize that you are doing a work that we cannot do in our own strength. We pray then you'll meet with us here and by the Spirit teach us and direct us. Be glorified as we heed the word, as we work our minds to understand it, as we strive to see what it is saying within its context, as we strive to be faithful to the text. May this book be honored as it points us ultimately to you and to your glory. Guide us here in this endeavor as we feast on your truth. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I imagine that most of us have been scared by a Halloween mask at some point in our lives. Get the right mask in the right circumstances and it can frighten almost anybody, especially children. But as we grow older, we learn that the scariest masks in this world are those that you cannot see. You can't tell that they're there, that the person is wearing it. We encounter public officials, politicians, administrators, sadly, even parents and pastors who live a lie. They convincingly speak words that they do not believe. They pretend to be people that they are not. They make promises They have no intention of keeping. They may even speak the truth at times, but only to gain advantage for themselves. To look good to those they're speaking to, to gain some angle in their own self-interest. Deceptive words, hypocritical deeds, hidden agendas. And sometimes, they actually come to believe their own lies, confusing their fantasies with realities. But whether knowingly deceptive or self-deceived, behind the invisible mask is someone with an agenda. An agenda to get rich, an agenda to gain fame, to achieve success, and all at the expense of others. To use people to move up. And I think the scariest of all these masked hypocrites are those who claim to speak for God. And they almost seem to do so. As we come to Numbers chapters 22 through 24, this section of Scripture, it warns us to exercise discernment in a world that's haunted by invisible mask-wearing false teachers. They're difficult to discern. They seem to be doing the right things. They seem to speak for God. But this narrative also encourages us to rejoice in God's protective covenantal watch care over His people in the face of enemies who would harm our souls. There are those with an agenda for their own benefit 
But there are enemies of our soul as well that even under the guise of godliness and Bible teaching attack God's people. But here in this text we find such encouragement as we consider the blessing of God upon us. We've tracked with Israel in her wilderness wanderings here in the book of Numbers. We've come now to Numbers chapter 22, and we are in that third region in the plains of Moab, on the other side of the Jordan River, and the rest of Numbers will take place here. In fact, the rest of all of Deuteronomy will take place here at this location. To draw in a little closer, we see here in this circle, the purple, the kingdom of Moab. Remember, they've worked their way around the kingdom of Edom so as not to attack uh, these distant relatives. Moab as well, distant relatives of Abraham, and they work up then north of the kingdom of Moab and narrowing in with our map here where you see the star appear across from Jericho. This is where now the Israelites have encamped as they anticipate crossing the Jordan River into the promised land as God has given this land to them. They're now encamped here at this place. You see the mountains even on this map as it's described there where you see Mount Nebo, you see the elevation there, that's important to the text today, and then the plain where Israel is encamped just north of the border of Moab. The promised land is in sight, I mean literally in sight. They have made a lot of progress through all of their disobedience to God, all of the difficulties that they've faced in the wilderness. These 40 years are virtually now over. And they see the promised land there before them. We remember that Moab refused passage through its territory, but God would not permit Israel to engage militarily with Moab because the Moabites were, again, related to Abraham. So God, in His protection of Abraham, in His promises to Abraham, will not permit that to take place. And yet, in chapter 21... Israel has defeated the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. These were significant defeats. God has blessed the nation this way, at this place, using them as a tool of discipline and these Amorite nations. And how do you think that makes the king of Moab feel? I mean, he's really nervous. He's quite jumpy, this massive group of people, this army that has now proven itself just to the north of my border, he's worried that he's going to come under attack, as we might expect. So Israel is encamped on the Jordan plain, Balak, I'll refer to him as with the Hebrew pronunciation, uh, Balaam will use the more English translation as the Hebrew doesn't perfectly translate anyway, but King Balak of Moab views the encamped nation from the Jordanian heights, from these mountains above. We find then in the first movement of this narrative that Moab seeks to hire Balaam to curse Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread 
of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak knows it's a suicide mission to try to defeat Israel's superior forces. So he seeks a weapon of mass destruction that he imagines to be greater than his inferior army. What is that? Verse 4. So Balak the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amar. You see the marginal reading there, the people of his kindred, depending on how we translate that, that phrase. But let's stop there just for a moment. Who is this Balaam? Picture him as a pagan divination guru, that he divines what is coming ahead, what the gods are indicating. He's probably reading entrails and the flight of birds and also seeking to touch the divine realm in some way through his rituals. This is what's interesting that misses us. This man lives 400 miles away. That's a long trek when you're going by foot or by donkey at best. This is, this is a man of great fame. And Balak is, is, is approaching him from this great distance, asking him to make an 800-mile round trip to come and visit me. I've got something for you. False religionists using religion to fight God. To get to cut to the chase here. But picking up there in verse 5, so he calls him saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. For those who know the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, this phrase just jumps right off the page. He whom you bless is blessed. He whom you curse is cursed. We see this so markedly in God's blessing upon Israel, this very phrasing. Balak wants to curse Israel. Is that a good idea? Genesis 12 Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's word. Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abram, centuries earlier, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years there in Egypt. 
But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And I will bless those who bless them, and I will curse those who curse them, because they are blessed by God." My elective love rests on them. Your people who are to come. Well, those people have come. And four centuries later, they are poised to enter this promised land, this offspring that God promised to Abraham, this land that he has given to them and assigned to them as a gift, as a grant by his grace. They're right here, ready to enter in. And Balak says, curse them. I want you to come here and curse them because you are very capable. Your reputation precedes you. From hundreds of miles away, we know you to be a great diviner. So whether unwittingly or not, he acts in defiance of God as he solicits this religious man's help. We notice in the second movement that God restricts Balaam, affirming Israel's blessing. That makes perfect sense in light of what God has done in electing love for Israel. Verse 7, so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with fees of divination in their hands. So they're leaving Moab, Midianites as well in conjunction, these princes come. They come to Balaam, and they gave him Balak's message. God condemned sorcery, but divination was not necessarily wrong. The Israelites rightly and faithfully divined God's will on a number of occasions prior to the existence of written revelation. But Balaam's view of divination was different than Israel's. The idea was to offer sacrifices, placate the gods, get them on your side, and then you can use them to do your bidding. That's the world he's in. But they come with the fee of divination. That means a handsome fee meant to entice Balaam to make an 800-mile round-trip journey on a donkey to secure God's aid and thus to curse Israel. And we stand back and say, this is craziness. To get God's help to curse the people that he's blessed. But this is a false religionist at work. It's exactly what he proposes to do. It seems to Balak really what he really wants is a sorcerer to cast an evil spell on Israel. And Balaam will have to repeatedly instruct the king how divination works. Divination is finding out what the will of the God is. And he keeps instructing him through these chapters. But, people, it's the money. It's the money. It's all that glorious wealth and that glorious prestige that captures Balaam's interest. And that's what we think we need to rightly read into the very subtle text up to this point. But verse 8, he said to them, Lodge here tonight and I will bring back word to you as the Lord, as Yahweh speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. 
And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? That's not seeking information God doesn't know. It's not God's ignorance. He's trying to draw Balaam out. He's trying to get, them to get him to consider what's going on here and to judge his own heart. Who are these men that have come to you? Verse 10, Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. Wow. Drive them out. God has brought them exactly here over a 400-year process and most recently through a 40-year journey. God has brought them here and you want to drive them out. In fact, you want me to drive them out. I have done this. Centuries earlier, I promised this land to Abraham and his offspring. Drive them out. Here's God's response, verse 12. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Period. That's the point. Everything Balaam does from this point forward is in active resistance to verse 12. This is God's will. This is what God has said. He doesn't need any more. It'd be nice if the chapter just ended right there. Everything that he does is to resist this word, this plain language. Do not leave with these delegates. Don't go to Moab. And do not Curse that people, for I've blessed them. So, verse 13, Balaam rose early in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for Yahweh has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in between there. That's an 800-mile journey. On donkeys at best. And they come back and say, sorry king, he won't come. The great guru diviner has turned you down. I'm sure Balak was profoundly disappointed with this news. But what does that mean? Okay, he needs more money. We've got to just up the price. Then maybe we'll get him. And so Moab again solicits Balaam's services. And this time God, in some sense, concedes. Verse 15, so once again Balak sent princes more in number, more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do, do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. I will give you honor. Assumed, I will give you wealth. 
you ever had anybody come to you and say, I'll do whatever you tell me to do? Who's a king? It's quite an offer. Wealth, prestige, power, a ticker tape parade if you want one. Come at any cost, he says to Balaam. Verse 18. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. Amen and amen. What a beautiful sermon. Sounds good. Good theology. Faithful words. Only what God says. That's all I can do. I can't come. Beautiful speech, orthodox speech. The problem is the invisible mask. The problem is what's in his heart when he says it. Balaam knows he cannot override God's will. But his spirit here, I think we should rightly read into it, is one that's kind of like, sorry guys, I can't do it. You know, sort of like a football fan offered free tickets who tells his friends, sorry guys, I can't go to the game. My wife's family reunion is this afternoon. I I can't go. But you say, but yeah, but, but but he speaks of my God. He's my God. I must do what my God says. He even calls Yahweh his God. The question is, are they honest words? Are they real words? Or are they sheer hypocrisy? How do you know? I think the text is purposefully subtle here to make us think, does he mean it? Is he with it? This is a great speech. You could take verse 18, give it to any preacher in the Christian church. Those are pretty good words. That's a great sermon. I will say only what God says to say. I will only honor Him with my will, my words, my efforts. What's the test? The test isn't the sermon. The test is the life. It's the obedience. Remember verse 12? But what does He do? What He says, verse 18, great orthodox sermon. Verse 19, it's what He does. What does He do? So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Let me ask Balaam the question, what more does the Lord need to say to you? Why are you pressing him for more? Why are you manipulating God when his word is crystal clear? It's like Christians today who see the word of God, they know what that word says, and then they ask God if they can do something else. It's a ridiculous waste of time. God doesn't change his mind like we do. He cannot be manipulated with evil. But this is what Balaam does. I'm going to go back to the Lord and see, I mean, he doesn't say it, but I'll I'll just see what he has to say, see if I can get him to say what I want him to say. Verse 20, And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, arise. Go with them, but only do what I tell you. Okay, that's confusing. Why is God telling Balaam to do what he just told him not to do in verse 12? Answer, he's not. 
The truth is, for God to permit a course of action does not mean that he approves that action. It's a problem, we can, a, a confusion that we can take on at times. The fact that God grants us freedom to do something, the fact that all the doors seem to open up in front of us with ease, is never final proof that God smiles on what we've done. It's concerning, it's alarming when we hear Christians say this at times. All the doors open before me. Everything worked out nicely. Fine. But what does God think? The fact that the circumstances worked out nicely for you means utterly nothing if God's word is opposed to it. The key is God's word. That's our, that's our solid ground. Well, Balaam faces divine resistance. And I know the interpretation that I'm drawing out here is correct because of what follows. Verse 22, but God, or verse 21, so Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. So when God says go, it's kind of like, I'm not going to stop you. But then God is rightly and justly angered when he does. Fine, Balaam, you want to go so badly, go. I've told you not to go, but I'll let you decide whether or not you will obey me, but you must only speak what I say. I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to let you curse them. But Balaam's opposition comes not only from God, it comes from a most unlikely source as he continues his double-minded journey to Moab. Verse 22, in the middle of the verse, now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him and the donkey saw the angel of Yahweh standing on the road with a drawn sword in his hand and the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field and Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. You stupid beast, what on earth is wrong with you? Whap, whap. And he gets him back on the road. Verse 24, Then the angel of Yahweh stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of Yahweh, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. You idiotic donkey. What is wrong with you? What are you doing? You have crushed my foot. The diviner is livid. Verse 26, Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn. He couldn't turn into the field. He couldn't turn into the wall. Either to the right or the left. Verse 27, when the donkey saw the angel of Yahweh, she lay down under Balaam. It's only a place left to go. And Balaam's anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? That's what Balaam's been saying. What are you doing to me? And the donkey said, what are you doing to me? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. 
And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? He said, No. You've made a fool of me, you think? He's here having an argument with a donkey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. And the donkey speaks, really? Do we take this literally? I think we do. The God who split the Red Sea and created the donkey with a tongue and lips, a mouth, can breathe the air of the Spirit through that donkey to speak for a moment. And this man is so angry, that doesn't even cause him fear. His anger doesn't even get knocked out by fear. I mean, he should have fallen down himself on the ground when the donkey started speaking, but he's so mad, so hot, that he argues with the donkey. But in that simple response, no, you've not treated me this way, it seems that right there, it starts to dawn on Balaam, maybe there's more going on here than meets the eye. And indeed, there is. Verse 31, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. Oh, the irony. He's already opened the eyes of the donkey. Now the big donkey gets his eyes opened. (laughs) And he saw the angel of Yahweh standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed down and fell on his face. He joins the donkey on the ground. And the angel of Yahweh said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. You lack a sword to kill your donkey. I didn't leave my sword at home. And I could use it to kill you right now. Your way is perverse. You have lined yourself up as a false religionist with all your wonderful speeches. And you are opposing me. Verse 34. Balaam, if anything else, is at least good on this occasion at saving his own neck. And Balaam said to the angel of Yahweh, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And this is contrition on some level. He really has no other angle. And in fact, we'll see that the contrition is not really real repentance. But, verse 35, the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men. But speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the prince of Balak. With the princes of Balak. That is, I think now God is saying, I am going to use you as a tool for my purposes and my people. Go and speak what I tell you to speak. The final movement in this segment is that Balaam serves Moab to no avail and blesses 
Israel, ironically. Verse 36, when Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon, that river, at the extremity of the border. So he's in northeast Moab territory. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send to you to call you? So first thing in his, this resistance is the rebuke of the king. Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? I can give you everything you want. You see the, the play for power and for wealth. Verse 38, Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Here again, he's explaining to him how divination works. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Huzoth. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. So offerings of sacrifice to get their way, with ritual, religious ritual playing the part of holy men, the goal being to manipulate God to curse his people. Balaam views the people and sacrifices to God. Verse 41, the morning Balak, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal, and from there he saw a fraction of the people. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps Yahweh will come to meet me. And whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height. Let's stop for a moment. They're on this height overlooking Israel encamped. And with these sacrifices, what they're hoping to do is to get Yahweh, to get the God of Israel on their side. We've been in this spot before. Somebody really upsets us, irritates us, but then says nice, kindly words of things we want to hear, and suddenly we're somewhat warmed. That's how they think God acts. We offer these many sacrifices, 14 animals dying on these altars, lifted up to Yahweh in His name. He's certainly going to warm up to our agenda. We're religious people. He will like that. We speak the right words. And he'll get on our side and do what we want him to do. That's what's going on here. Verse 4, And God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I've arranged the seven altars. I've offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth, and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up this discourse and said, From Aram Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. It all sounded really good to Balak up to this point. Then he continues, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom God has not denounced? 
For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. They are a holy people. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. This is not the sermon Balaam wants to proclaim. But it's the word that God puts in his mouth. And he certainly catches it. And Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? I don't have an option here. I don't have a choice, king. I really want your money. I want the fame. I want you to approve of me. I want this journey to have been for some profit. But God has blessed these people. And that's that. It doesn't end here. Balak tries again, verses 13 to 17, and Balaam again blesses Israel, verses 18 to 24. Balak tries a third time, verses 25 to 30. Balaam does all he can to manipulate the Lord again, but in the end blesses Israel a third time, verses 3 through 9 of chapter 24. And then in 24, 15 through 24, Balaam announces a final grand finale blessing. It's like fireworks on the 4th of July. And he blesses them again. Verses 15 to 24. And we find so interestingly, verse 17, where he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. Prophecies of coming kings in Israel. Prophecies of the coming king of Israel who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. In 24-25, you just see slumped shoulders, hanging head, tired out men as Balaam arose and went back to his place and Balak also went to his. And my guess is they never talked again. This was a debacle from their side. We've not seen the last of Balaam. He will lead Israel into moral failure and God will inflict the ultimate damage upon him. Every mention of Balaam from here on out, all the subtlety's gone. He was a perverse man, a false religionist, a false teacher seeking to manipulate God's people to get his own way and in the end all he wanted to do was curse what God had blessed. And God will take him out soon. But for a few moments, let me draw attention to just two ideas emerging from this text. First of all, we cannot miss the point that we are reminded here in Balaam's subtle manipulative ways to be on our guard against popular, gifted Christian teachers who say many right things, but whose motivations and ethical behavior betray a hidden evil agenda. 
there are Christian teachers who say a lot of right things. We need to be discerning. No Christian teacher says everything right. But there are those who have a hidden agenda behind the good messages. We must be aware of slick-sounding Christian teachers who say just enough to get us nodding, but who privately live in opulence as they continue to convince other people to put ridiculous amounts of money into their pockets. To give ridiculous amounts of trust and confidence where they're never actually seen behind closed doors. They say orthodox things, but their marriages are in ruins. Living promiscuously behind the doors of their lush offices. They preach love, but they treat fellow staff members like garbage. They talk about sacrifice, but they live in luxury. They teach the Bible, but they see themselves as above its directives. The Bible is for you people, they say, to do what it says so that you put money in my pockets and I live how I want. They're not really concerned about the book. And this word, this book, is the answer. It's not their manipulative teachings. It's what God has said in His Word that is the test. It's not how good they look, how wonderful they sound, how skillful they are at turning a phrase. Chapter chapter 22, verse 18 is beautiful speech. But it's empty because there's an invisible mask and a play actor behind it. The key is the book. Is their teaching truly in line with all that the Bible teaches? Do they evidence genuine repentant conviction under the directives of God's Word? Do they live lies of obedience others can follow? Or do they see themselves as special cases? Exempt from the demands of a Christ who said, take up your cross and follow me. Not get on your Learjet and stay in the most expensive hotel in every city in the world. Second, with this awareness, with this discernment to not be taken in and fooled by the slick Christian speeches where there's this hidden agenda, on the other side of that, we go into this world with no fear When God chooses to bless us, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So so there's, there's the discernment and awareness aspect of it, but there's also the side that we are the targets of those who would curse God's people. If we are genuine believers in Christ, this is the case. From the demonic realm, from Satan's purposes, and from false teachers, from those who love this world, there is an assault upon the blessing that God has put upon us. 
We are Israel's offspring through faith in Christ as children of Abraham. Israel's blessing was the offspring and a land. Through faith in Christ, we become Abraham's spiritual offspring. And we receive the blessings of the new covenant relationship with Christ. Let me just pause to say so significantly and importantly, but we'll just rest on it for a moment. If you are not in that covenant relationship with Christ, if you have not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ paying the cost of your sin in his death and rising from the dead to give life to his people, if you have not entered that relationship with him, you are in grave danger. You are unprotected against the right judgment of God against you and your sin. We won't expose your sins. We won't expose anyone's sin in particular. But if we put your life up on the screen in front of us, you know you're a sinner. You must come to the protective blessing of Christ upon sinners. It's a gift. He alone can open your eyes as he alone can open the eyes of a donkey. As he alone can open the eyes of the big donkey. If you can't come to the place where you say, in my sin, I'm a big donkey. Then there's not sufficient humility for you to be saved. But if you come and say, I know my sin. I know the guilt and the weight that is here. Christ pays the cost of that sin with his death in your place and gives life to his people through his resurrection power. Come to him. But for those who've entered into that new covenant relationship, we have received the blessings of God in a way that outstrips the blessing upon Israel, the promise of an offspring, the promise of the land, in a way that outstrips that promise. We have now promises in Christ. We have entered into relationship with Him, into the promised land of rest in Christ. When Balaam and Balak attempted to curse Israel. In a sense, they may have seen something like this with many, many people around. They were seeking to curse God. His presence, His holiness, His glory to curse that. When you're camped around the presence of God as a new covenant believer, there is all sorts of warfare against you to curse you, to destroy your soul. But we have God's word. We have his blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not merely an offspring and a land, but every spiritual blessing through all eternity. We are in Christ thus secured. 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. All things are ours in Christ that pertain to godliness and life. Romans 8, 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If Satan's standing on the hill looking down upon you and seeking to curse you, if there are false teachers that are drawing you into their lair and seeking to curse you, if they look down upon you, if, if the world is opposed to you and wants to curse you for being a follower of Christ, we say, who can be against me? Who? Who? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christian. We're safe in Christ. Against the world, the flesh, and the devil, lurking like Balak from the mountains upon our soul, Jesus' death and resurrection breaks the power of sin in our lives. He has defeated the world that is hostile to His cause. He will ultimately deliver us from its influence. Satan assaults our soul, but we are safe in Christ. Satan would curse, but Christ says no condemnation. That's why we gather and sing as a church. We sing such as five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. Don't touch that ransom soul. That soul is mine. I bought her. I bought him. It's why we sing, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, says God, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Balak in the mountains looking down on Israel. Satan with his evil intentions staring down upon us. A world opposed to us and wanting to curse. We can only know that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We can know that we are seated in the heavens with Him. We can know that He will hold us fast to the end. We can know, as Jesus said, that my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give to them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No curse will ever come again on God's people. Whom Christ chooses to bless whom Christ opens their blind eyes to see his glory that one is forever blessed let's stand and let's sing to his name in response